Friday, January 13th at 7.30 p.m. and Saturday, January 14th at 3 p.m. and 7.30 p.m. at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco. For more information and tickets, visit dancemission.com or call 415-826-4441. This event is wheelchair accessible and is a benefit for Dance Brigade's Dance Mission Theater's move to a new building. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3.30. We return to Cover to Cover. And here we are again, and I promised, as uh, I, and I certainly want to keep the promise, that I was going to ask Nina Serrano, who's here with me. I'm Jack Foley, in case you don't know. And I, I promised that I would ask her about her recent trip. She had a wonderful time, and she did something wonderful. Tell us about it. Well, I, uh, I was reborn. I went on a trip to Texas, and I went on a trip to Texas because a theater group, a high school theater group in a town called Byron, Texas, decided to put on our play, the story of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, which had been sitting in a file drawer for 40 years at the bottom of a filing cabinet. Now, who is our in that sentence? In that sentence was my husband, who was not my husband when we wrote it, Paul Richards, and my writing partner, who has since passed, Judith Binder. The three of us got together to write this play in 1976. We performed the play. We performed it around the Bay Area, toured around. We did it on KQED, and then it went into the filing cabinet until... About two years ago, when the uh, Rosenberg Fund, which is which are the children of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, Richard and uh, Robert Michael, rather Michael and Robert Maripole, decided to start a campaign to have their mother's name, uh, well, to have her exonerated, because it became obvious to the world that she was no that she was not guilty that her brother-in-law who testified gave false testimony against her so that he and his wife would not be charged and killed in the electric chair as Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were in 1953 uh, he admitted several years ago that that was false testimony given in this ugly exchange with the FBI, this trade-off for his freedom. So the, the Rosenberg sons began the campaign, and they they put lots of stuff. By then there was email and Facebook, and they put lots of stuff up. And so we read that, and uh, we thought, oh, we should grab that play from out of the filing cabinet, get it digitized because there were no computers available when we wrote 40 years it. ago, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and put it out there, which we did and it was met with complete silence. <laughs> Until one day, we get an email from a high school theater teacher in Texas that he would like to put it on with his students. Well, we were just thrilled and that accounted for my trip. I was thrilled with his adaptation. 
he adapted it because we had a narrator in the show but when you're doing high school theater you can't use a narrator you've got to have as much action as you can and use as many actors as you can so he took our narration and made it into these lively newsboys rushing in and out announcing headlines so it, it was a tremendous thrill for me to go and see it and i had told them that i was coming the students and the teacher and i also had told them that i was going to see every performance and there were five performances excellent did they how did they react to you oh my god i don't think william shakespeare could have gotten a better reception <laughs> than i did they were in uh, totally thrilled to be meeting the author of the play that they were creating and they were stunned to hear that I had been present at the rally in New York the night that they were killed in the electric chair. Yes. They were quite shocked about that. And I, I had a lot of chance for interaction with these young people. But what amazed me, coming from the Bay Area, I had all these stereotypes of what Texas was. Texas was Klan country. Texas was tarring and feathering. Texas was racist. And when I got there, I was, from the airport on, met with great kindness and friendliness. And I thought, okay, they'll reveal themselves the night of the play <laughs> when they hear this is a play about uh, pro-union, yeah, right. that it's a play about Jews, that it's a play about communists, it's about freedom. They're, they're not going to go for this. Well, the play was met with tremendous applause, and afterwards... I got to meet the parents, the teachers, the staff, and the students, and the other audience members, and we received no, no critique. We received no disapproval. And that was a very momentous night, that opening night. It was November 7th. My daughter came with me, and we had voted already in California. Mm -hmm. But when we got to Texas, they were still, still voting. voting. Wow. And they were still voting even when we came out of the play. Well, my daughter and I were assuming, she was rather stunned too, that there was nobody criticizing that play. And uh, we were assuming that Hillary Clinton had won because we're coming from California. Oh, yes. So yes. we're hungry because it's like about 8.30 at night. And we go into the first uh, chain that we find open, and there are four TV sets on, and we sit down, and we're in shock. We see that in some state, Trump is winning. So we yeah. think that's just one offbeat state. Yeah, right. But by the time we actually received the menus and put in our order and the food came, we could hardly eat. It was on the level of a, an extraordinary astonishment for almost everybody. Everybody who, who was, you know, for Hillary. I mean, good Lord. It was, it was very astonishing. So we thought, okay, tonight, for some reason, only the people that were more liberal came to the play. But mm -hmm. tomorrow night, with <laughs> Trump having won, and with other people in the restaurant cheering, and when we got back to the motel, there was a uh -huh, certain amount yeah. of celebrating going on. Uh, that's when we'll. That's when the truth will reveal itself. So the next night, when Trump is president, once again, 
The kids are super inspired and super eager to do the play, more than they had been the night before. Wonderful. With yeah. more determination. And then the audience is just clapping, and there's question and answers, and they're all for the play. And uh, I keep waiting. And even in the lobby, nowhere, nowhere, nobody criticizes. Yes. So... That's the power of art, isn't it amazing? Well, I feel like art, Trump, Trump. Yes, yes. And the amazing thing was all the unity afterwards when we would talk in the lobby about the play. People were saying things like, um, there has been a lot of injustice and we have to make a lot of change, even in the face of Trump. We have to go Mm -hmm. ahead with change. So... For me, the takeaway, and it was also for my daughter the takeaway, is starting from the fact that we thought Hillary won to the fact that we thought nobody was going to like this play, that you shouldn't believe what you believe. You have to question (laughs) your own thoughts because every cliche we had was broken open and instead we met human kindness well, we people. Want people. Yeah, real people. Uh, the, the, one of my favorite moments in, in literary history is the moment in which Rilke writes his poem to uh, the archaic statue of Apollo and the, the uh, message of the poem, of, uh, which is what his definition of art is, is you must not live an end and you must change your life. And that the message of art is you must change your life, which I think in, in Rilke means to arrive at a larger and more generous consciousness than the one you got stuck in for a while. Exactly. Exactly. And it was wonderful for me to make contact with the youth, especially since I had played the role of Ethel in 1976. Oh, wow. To yeah. meet the 16-year-old girl uh-huh. who was playing the role of, of, of Ethel and the 17-year-old boy who played Julius. And they both threw their hearts into it. And they really believe that they want to work for real justice in the world because they saw the travesty that was called justice. And... The Rosenberg case is kind of a critical moment in our history because the McCarran Act, do you remember way back there was this evil McCarran Act? Mm-hmm. And it was uh, because we had, we, the United States government, had declared a war on communism. More recently, we've had a war on terrorism, and before that, we had a war on drugs. But before that, our war was on communism. In other words, on ideas. So anybody was illegal, a terrorist, a criminal, bad. If they they had had, an idea. If they had a different (laughs) idea idea of how things should be. And from that was born the laws that allowed them to railroad the Rosenbergs to their death and allowed them to have the NSA where they could spy on anyone they want to, which today has gone to the uh, extreme that I bet even Mr. McCarran, who Mm -hmm. wrote the act, never dreamed was possible that you could spy on every person in In the the world. world. Yes. So the Rosenberg case is 
pivotal, and I'm looking forward to you and I reading some of the Rosenberg letters on this program. Oh, that would be wonderful. Yeah, no, we're going to do that, and and um, perhaps doing some, you know, the play. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we we should do this, and it's also, I mean, the Rosenbergs were like Sacco and Vincetti, in both cases, railroaded, and uh, you know, and. Prejudice too. The, the ethnicity had something to do with those decisions, you know, because uh, Sacco and Vincetti were, of course, Italians. All Italians are anarchists, uh, and uh, the Rosenbergs were Jews. All the Jews are on the sides of the Russians. I mean, you know, and and think of the Jews who invented the uh, atomic bomb. I mean, you know, all that stuff. Um, it's really terrible, and uh, that's something we need to talk about. One of the things we need to do, I want to do, um, before we go too much further, is to make a short uh, tribute to David Melser, who was a wonderful poet, born in 1937, died on the last day of 2016. And I have two CDs, and I'm going to play just a short excerpt from each of them. Um, the first was David in 1958 when he was a beatnik. <laughs> and, excuse me, it's called Poet with Jazz. And he'll be reading The Opium Queen and The Lady Birds. And that's Melser with Bob Duro, the great Bob Duro on piano, Ernie Williams on trumpet, Chiz Harris on drums, and Larry Honings on bass. And then a CD from 2015, which is called Two-Tone, Poetry and Jazz. David Melser and his wife Julie Rogers with Zan Stewart on tenor saxophone. We're just going to hear David on this. You'll hear more of those CDs when I do a full-fledged tribute to David. But in the wake of David's death, I thought it would be good to hear that. I wrote some time ago and showed it to David a while ago, just as fun. What joys were felt, sir, from the King of Swing, King David the Melser, Vauti Macaronimo. Dig it. Please play Disc 2. There, in ribbon worlds, clouds, shadows, forever hinting of moons golden and absurd, on a rug banner stood the opium queen. There in a century of flags, winds and drapes of sun-spun fabric, a sentence evolved from her mouth of night a star. If you ever approach yourself from the sleep of it and with fingers open up your sleep, be careful not to pick into the dream. Retreat back into yourself, medicate the wounds, after you are a unity without hands, meditate. There in worlds without words, I saw the opium queen, perhaps she was a whore after all. birds pick down Polk Street. I've seen smaller eyes bright without squint on dead canaries. They strut a faded gate 
of shabby black shoes run down at the heels without canes and without balance, sometimes stopping to push back the sky with their hands or hold onto a wall falling onto the walk. Birds, some with wigs of yellow and wigs of black, and some with tiny mustaches like bird tracks scratched in with ink. Their shopping bags do not contain worms, but bargains sorted in thrifties and Woolworths. Two for a dollar, porcelain dogs or milkmaids, corn plaster, a penny less than Rexall, and all the aspirin to kill an elephant, five thousand for sixty-eight cents. Tiny old lady birds picked down Polk Street with their ancient fur wraps. I have seen deader skin on an old dog sunning in a summer shadow, and their dark flower print dresses hanging like a pigeon's neck from the barbed wire of their girdles and cloth slips and woolen flesh-colored stockings. Make it, little mamas. trumpet in the paper bag in the back seat of his clunker going down green to grant to the coffee gallery jam session cowboy and me are weed whacked and he drives so slow we could do it faster walking yet dream serene it all makes sense and he murmurs man don't dwell in the bug. Thelonious Monk dies on my 45th birthday. Years ago, a Seattle DJ told me this story. Thelonious was playing here with the Giants of Jazz group, dodged all requests for interviews, but, but I got through somehow and found him in his hotel room, lying down. His silence unhinged me, but I kept talking, and, and, and after a while he'd say something, nothing really, a grunt. And I asked him what it was that he did, I mean, what he thought when he played, some dumb thing like that, like what he thought his music did. Monk didn't answer. He kept looking at the second hand, circled the electric clock face on the dresser, and looked at me and said, 
I put it down. You got to pick it up. That was David Melser. The first two tracks you heard were from 1958. The second two tracks were from 2015. Some changes in the voice over those 40 years. I want to just add one thing. David wrote his first poem at the age of 11, and he wrote this about it. It came through me and out of me, a combination of vision and transmission. Maybe transmission would be more accurate. I was in the center of its energy, like a glass or lens where words, not light, comes through. Lovely. Yes, I noticed that change of voice, very dramatic. Yes, extraordinary. <laughs> very dramatic, but of course many decades had gone by. And I'm sure that in those decades, uh, and certainly by the last one, he must have uh, gotten a much kinder and more loving view of old ladies. Maybe because I am one. Uh, that was such a... Uh, I guess the harsh view of youth at age. It was, though. I think that he means to shift it all in that last line. Make it, little mamas. I think that yes. the last line is, is meant as this kind of sympathy thing yes. for them. And, and uh, that's interesting. And it's interesting that he's such a young man making that. So these He are, was 21 at that time. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. yeah. So he's, he's really quite young and pretty close to his own mama. That's right. Yeah, I, I can remember feeling very distant from aged people when well, I was 35? young. Are you 35? You're complaining about being 35? <laughs> Come on, Nina. Well, at 82, I think I'm, <laughs> I, I rate as an old woman. And I'm in the middle of moving once again. This is the second move in nine months. And uh, I was recalling, as we're moving into a new place... The garden of the old place, the nine months ago house mm -hmm. in Oakland, in Radnor Road, it had this wonderful night-blooming jasmine. And every every November, or maybe at the end of October and crawling into November, this smell would start to fill the house, drifting through any open windows. And I realized, oh, I've missed that. I'm going to make sure to get a night-blooming jasmine for this new yard. Absolutely. And I'm going to Just the name is a beautiful name, isn't it? Night-blooming jasmine. Yes. Don't you feel like that sometimes? Oh, yes. <laughs> well, uh, one of the great things about Havana is Galan de Noche, which is like gentlemen of the night. And which is how I always translated it. But now I'm beginning to think that maybe uh, the horticultural translation would be more accurate to be mm -hmm. uh, uh, night blooming jasmine. Yes, yeah. Though jasmine is female rather than male, but still, gente. I guess it's people, people of the night, huh? Well, no, galan, galan. Oh, galan, yeah. gallants. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, uh, that's yes. what you might. Hipsters or something. No, more like boyfriends or uh -huh. or gentlemen. But that kind of a gentleman. Mm -hmm. The Jasmine Knights of Radnor Road, Oakland. Sweet jasmine of the full moon, night fragrance on wafting wings, gently moving ghosts and vapors waiting in shadows to emerge as dreams. 
sweet evening scent creeping lightly around trunks of older trees, unraveling secrets scrambled in memories and unseen vistas, intertwined with words as markers of sunken treasures in layers beneath the earth's surface. Sweet jasmine of the night, you are born of dirt, Dust thou art, and dust to dust, your fate the same as mine. Night companion, we drift through time, emerging again and again into morning. You dizzy my dreams and evoke stirred memories mixed and tossed into the sun-drenched day of bread and sweat. Wow! <laughs> yes, gorgeous poem. And thank you. If, if you don't mind, I'm going to answer that to a degree with a poem I just translated because your poem is is beautiful and it's about something beautiful and that concept of beauty. I, I just translated Baudelaire's poem "Beauty," which is a very interesting and strange and beautiful actually poem that he wrote. Yeah, I'm not going to read the French, but the first line is is stunning. Je suis belle au mortel. Comme un rêve de Pierre. And I translate that literally. I'm beautiful, mortals, like a dream of stone. And my sweet breast, where each must pass away, inspires in the poets, one by one, a love eternal and as mute as clay. Enthroned in azure, like a sphinx of enigmas, my heart is snow to the swan's sheer whiteness. Keep hate movement where dull lines amass. And so I never laugh, and so I never weep. Poets before my haughty attitudes, which I seem to borrow from the proudest monuments, wear out their days in somber, study, studious moods. I have to keep those docile lovers submissive, keep them bent. My eyes, my large, bright eyes, eternal mirrors changing all to beauty and in beauty ranging. Wow. Yeah, that's Baudelaire. He, he could write them. <laughs> Do you have a short one for us to go out on here? Well, before, I don't have a short one. I'd rather tell you to come and hear me read at La Peña on January 14th when we'll be celebrating the life of Fidel Castro. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So that's going to be at La Peña at 7 o'clock. Where is La Peña? La per oh. On Shattuck Avenue. On Shattuck Avenue. I think Prince is one of the cross streets. I think that's right. And you can always find it at L-A-P-E-N-A dot org, lapena dot org, without the N-Y. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That'll be a wonderful reading. Are you reading by yourself or somebody? Uh, uh, there's another poet who I don't know, and I'm eager to hear his work, called Roberto Leni, who is also going to be reading. And then there are going to be... Uh, speakers, and the most thrilling part for me, which I didn't realize till I saw the flyer, is that both my son and my grandson will be uh, playing music. Oh, wonderful. So, Fantastic. Uh, of course, I'm going to ask them to accompany me on my poem. Oh, of course, naturally. Uh, and I have to say, it's a poem I haven't yet written. So you, if you come, <laughs> will be the first to hear it. Well, I hope that we'll be the second on the next show. 
Definitely. Absolutely. Um, fantastic. Well, Nina, thank you very, very much. And Thank you, Jack. It's been a pleasure, as always, to do this poetic improv with you once a month. Yes, we, we, um, the audience may or may not notice. Uh, they probably notice. We make up a lot of the show <laughs> on the spot. We do what we can. Um, but it's been such fun, and, and it's a lot of fun to have another poet right next to you, coming back at you with the same stuff you come out with. Thank you, Erica Bridgman, for doing the board operation. You were fantastic. And thank you, KPFA and KPFA listeners who help keep our station alive. We're going to have to fight back hard in these upcoming years, but we can do it. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Rebecca Solnit says, it's the poignant story of someone who started out feeling like the only gay person in the entire world and ends up organizing millions of gay folks. Cleve Jones, long in the San Francisco heart of the struggle for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender rights, helped change gay history. He'll tell the story Wednesday evening, January 25th, 7.30 p.m. at St. John's Presbyterian Church, 2727 College Avenue in Berkeley. This KPFA benefit has wheelchair access and free parking. Tickets at brownpapertickets.com or our great independent bookstores. Richard Walensky will host the amazing, inspiring, often outrageous Cleve Jones, January 25th. Check the KPFA website.